Larry Fessenden is an American actor, producer, writer, director, film editor, and cinematographer, and he founded a New York-based independent production company called Glass Eye Picks. Over the last 25 years, Larry has churned out independent genre film after independent genre film. He's royalty in that category, I guess you could say. You hear me say it in the show, and you probably have heard other people call him that if you know Larry Fessenden. It's a privilege to have him on the show. I'm a fan of his. I've been a fan of his for probably over the last 10 to 12 years when I discovered his films, one of which, Habit, which came out in the late 90s, which I touch on, and it's good to get some behind-the-scenes stories on the making of it. This was a heck of a way to round out 2021, talking to someone you look up to, but I don't want to fanboy out too much. I gotta be professional here. These are just some awards Larry has won over the years. In 1997, at the Independent Spirit Awards, he won the Someone to Watch Award for his film Habit. He was nominated for Best Director that night as well. He also got nominated that same year for his debut film Habit at the Austin Film Festival for Best Feature Film. He's gone on to win at places like the Woodstock Film Festival, Williamsburg Brooklyn Film Festival. He was nominated for Best Screenplay for his film Wendigo at the 2003 Fangoria Chainsaw Awards. Won at the 2009 AFI Award for Movie of the Year for Wendy and Lucy. 2014, he was nominated for Chicago International Film Festival Audience Choice Awards for the ABCs of Death. I know a lot of people in the genre know that. 2016, he won the BAFTA Games Award for Original Property Until Dawn. 2011, he was inducted into the Fangoria Hall of Fame. I hope I didn't butcher any of those recognitions. I just got them off the internet. But still, pretty solid resume I have on my hands with today's guest. Despite working behind and in front of the camera for projects of his own, Larry is also known for really assisting with helping nurturing young and up-and-coming independent filmmakers. So it was a privilege to talk to him and hear what he has to say about the process. This was a lot of fun. This was a hell of a way to round out the year for me. So without further ado, enjoy the interview and welcome to the basement. All right, everybody, we are joined today by an independent film. Well, he's independent film royalty, writer, director, actor, producer, editor, founder of Glass Eye Picks, Larry Fessenden. Welcome to the basement, my friend. Hey, Tyler, good to be here, man. That, that, thanks for, uh, thank you for saying yes. Thank you for coming back. It's kind of funny how we initially were going to do this. Um, I was interviewing Christian Nilsson, uh, director of Dashcam. And then you popped up in my Zoom chat. <laughs> and I'm really sorry if I kind of fanboyed out when you popped on. And uh, I was just completely startled and wanted to interview you. But I didn't know if there was any signals that got crossed with where who was interviewing who. And I actually, when it happened, um, I knew you were in the movie. But like, it was not until you logged out, I was just kind of like, Oh, that's right. Larry's in the movie. And the whole time I'm talking to Christian, I'm like, damn it. <laughs> uh, that, yeah. Well, man, all these crazy things happen, of course. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I was just poking whatever button uh, they, uh, 
that came up in my feed and I guess we we connected for a second but here we are here we are again thank you for coming back I mean I I, I just kind of wanted to literally just hit some points with you and ask you some questions about you know films you made I've been I've been following your career for a while yeah and so let's just kind of start way at the beginning here like it's always kind of my go-to with I always like hearing what the early days were with filmmakers, actors, and, you know, whoever I have on this show, like what was the, what they, what did they watch? What did they read? What did they do anything when they were growing up? I mean, I don't know how far back you want to go, but usually the theme of this question is what made you, what did you see that made you say, I want to do that? Yeah, I love the question. I think it's a great question that you're asking. Um, And uh, you know, whatever, I, I guess I've, talked about this before but i'll say it for uh, for your listeners and viewers is uh, when i was a kid i grew up in manhattan and uh you know weekends were a big deal because that's when the horror movies played they played at noon they played at 4 30 and they played it you know on on the few channels you had and i watched the old black and white movies so i'm an old timer now i was born in the 60s so it was a really big deal for me. And then, you know, uh, I just responded to horror films more than other stuff. I liked all kinds of movies, but uh, those were sort of my secret place. And when my parents would go out for the day, it was the best time, you know, just me and the, the TV, which was probably like, oh my God, you know, 12 by 12 or something. Anyway, so I, I saw Frankenstein, but all kinds of, uh, really offbeat movies like The Incredible Melting Man, or no, no, uh, the, the, you know, all these random old universal movies. But then um, in the 70s, you could watch, you could get these magazines, fam- Famous Monsters of Filmland, Creepy Eerie. And it was just this whole world that I really responded to, uh, this sort of macabre world. And, um, I just like the iconic nature of these creatures. They seem to represent different afflictions. You know, there was the Hunchback of Notre Dame. There was Frankenstein. There was Wolfman. Wolfman was, you know, I continue to feel these uh, aspects uh, are still so profound, you know, that, and that's why we keep remaking these movies. And I think that's why, uh, Shutter exists and uh, Jason Bloom, you know, everybody is intrigued with revisiting these iconic uh, creatures. They really like our mythology, you know? So that was my youth. I, I grew up that way. And you can trace all of this. Uh, it's, it's a cultural thing, you know, they sold a bunch of movies to TV in the 60s, all the old universals. And so a whole generation of kids grew up on them. And I had the monster models, you know, the whole thing. So I'm really just quite literally a product of of my era, but it really stuck with me. And I know that uh, a lot of filmmakers who've gone on to much greater success than me had the same background. So it's fun to know that. Yeah, who, what kind of... Out of the universal monsters, it doesn't even have to be them. Like, who'd you, what'd you gravitate towards character wise? Frankenstein, uh, Wolf Manor, who was it? Well, it was, I, I, 
I was sort of uh, obsessed and haunted by Frankenstein. You know, I got a poster early on in my life and and had it up on the on the wall. I mean, this is there's such minutia, but it's funny. Um, it was like on this thin plastic. I mean, a dreadful product, and yet you know it was pretty cheap. I think one ninety nine. You know, in the back of the comic book. And there it came and I put it up and it was probably the Glenn Strange version of, uh, of the monster. Anyway, so that was very haunting to me. Um, I, I, I recently watched Frankenstein again because it was Halloween. So I always revisit. And, uh, you know, the Karloff performance, we all remember certain aspects, the, the reveal, but uh, he's very physical and it's so cool the way he moves around. He's much more... Uh, he has a great lumber when he walks. Like yeah. it's, it's iconic. That's it's it's fantastic. So you know whatever. I, I'm gonna celebrate Karloff here. I love the Wolfman because I think a lot of guys just wish they were werewolves. You could run free and and wreak havoc or or not. Um, and then the creature from the Black Lagoon was also beloved. That's just such a beautiful creature design. And you know that was sort of an environmental parable or whatever. Just don't fuck with uh, mother nature and this mm-hmm. cool creature. Uh, so, you know, those, those would be my touchstones, but I, well, I didn't like them all. No, I, I think the mummy is annoying and I watched the mummy again. Uh, maybe it shows that I have sort of a, a less imaginative sensibility, uh, but I find the Karloff mummy not very compelling. Uh, mm. Though it's amazing to see those images in uh, in film and realize, oh my god, yeah, these are the stills that I've lived with. Anyway, no, that's no, that's uh, not to bring the mood down a little bit, but the um, what was it? The it was it was during Halloween. I, I saw this on Facebook. I think it's the guy who played was in the suit for creature from the black lagoon. I, I guess, again, I don't want to bring the mood down, but I guess his, uh, his health isn't well. Aww. And I guess his daughter put up, I guess he might be um, Alzheimer's dementia. I don't know, but I guess his daughter put up something that got all over the internet of, you know, like his mailing address. He's down in, he's down in Florida of people just, you know, to send like, you know, photos of how much they love what he's done and everything. And like, just love for movie monsters and whatnot, just to kind of remind him, you know, in this unfortunately very rough time. And I don't know, I thought that was kind of cool. And I mean, I haven't seen Creature from the Black Lagoon in about five years, but I made it a point to hop on that. Um, Those really are just, that's an icon. I mean, I'm born in 1988 and I'm still watching it. People that I know are, are younger than me still watch it. We, like you said at the top of this, everybody goes back to that. That's like kind of the first, even though it didn't really originate in America, it's kind of like the first like American horror films, if I'm saying it right. But go ahead. Sorry. Okay, the, the, the second creature, believe it or not, is actually even more fun. So the first one goes, happens in the, you know, uh, in the lagoon, in the lagoon, as it would. Uh, and then the second one uh, is a more um, suburban, like he's already been brought to, a, a, he's in an aquarium or whatever. 
and uh, and then when he escapes it's just interesting it's a subtle thing i always like the first movie but then uh the sequel is pretty cool because it's a monster looking through windows and busting through glass and and you know tormenting people in a in a suburban environment the point that i'm really making is that all these movies they had something really uh cool going on they had great creature designs and yet they never quite satisfied and i think that's an essential aspect of these movies uh i rewatched one of the frankenstein movies and it was just like you've got to be kidding me the frankenstein monster was in the movie for four minutes. So, you know, this was this kind of uh, cinema of yearning that that we had going on as a kid. And uh, that's what I think, and, and a lot of those old movies aren't really very good. And so what, what I think happened to me is that I wanted to embrace that, those vibes, those creatures, those iconic ideas, those images, and, and put them in a modern setting. So anyway, that's just, what happened to me and i don't even know if i've achieved it but i'm i'm working on it well i was gonna save this question i literally just jotted it down real quick about five minutes before we started recording here because it slipped my mind a little bit but you made a frankenstein-esque horror film a couple years ago um yeah. yeah just talk to me about talk to me about depraved well i made a movie called depraved and it is without a doubt my frankenstein film although i'll never forget a reviewer saying you know he didn't even credit mary shelley and i'm like dude i think i think we get it now man (laughs) i think we get it uh but uh it is not only my own frankenstein story told in a very real way and my angle was that the doctor uh the mad doctor was actually uh uh, an Iraqi vet, vet returning and he suffers from PTSD. So that's why he's obsessed. He's trying to still repair people from the battlefield. Um, and he sort of stitches this body together and, and, and so on. So, you know, whatever, it's my take on Frankenstein, but it's what I've been saying. It's like trying to regurgitate some of those images and, and really embrace them and then and think about how they're still relevant today. That's my main jam is that um, these old horror movies and horror tropes, uh, they really matter and they, they need to be revitalized every decade. And that's fine. I think Jason Bloom's doing that. Universal tried to do it. They kind of screwed up. They made the wrong moves with the Tom Cruise mummy movie. In other words, they don't understand that horror is actually a dark uh, place and people are ready to receive that, um, that vibe. Uh, but Hollywood is so scared. They, they actually still can't make horror movies. I, I, I guess that Jason Bloom, because he's sort of a, a little bit of an outsider and we're also in a modern world, people are ready for the, slightly darker approach but it's interesting they've never been able to capitalize on their own franchise their own universe yeah no i i feel you i mean i I think obviously i mean we'll get off this and move into something else real quick but uh i think it's like every 10 ish five 10 ish years maybe not five maybe 10 to 15 i should say like i feel like the frankenstein 
genre of its own kind of gets revitalized a little bit, either in independent horror or in the studio system, even if it's not Frankenstein or like, I just kind of, kind of noticed that. And I, after like, you know, usually like some big world event, you see somebody trying to make some sort of Frankenstein film. And like, you know, obviously with what's happened in the past, you know, year and a half, everything going on, I'm curious to see five years down the road, if we're going to see, I don't know, someone taking their fears and anxieties and poof, making something about someone trying to play God. I, I don't know. I, we'll see what happens, but. Well, um, it, yeah, it's, it's always going to happen. And also what, what is the true irony of the horror business is that we've been making apocalypse movies. We didn't need a pandemic to get inspiration. Oh, now I'm gonna go to the typewriter and write my shit. It's like, no, that's what horror films are about. They're about the breakdown of society. They're about people mistrusting each other. They're about an unknown thing out there that is afflicting people that nobody can agree on how to resolve. I mean, that's every zombie movie and that's COVID, uh, you know, brings up political divides. And, uh, you know, honestly, that's why horror movies are so badass because they are always at the forefront of the issues that the rest of the culture is sitting around shopping on Amazon and then they wake up and go, oh, this is so scary. And we're all saying, yeah, well, that's what we've been saying. <laughs> I 100% agree with you completely. That's yeah. how I felt during this whole crazy uh, time. But let me go back to you a little bit here. Um, like, when was the well, first back time? To me? Yes, oh, back me? to you. <laughs> well, okay, that works. Um, I was just doing some research, you know, to prepare for this and, you know, just seeing some interviews of you on YouTube and whatnot. And it said, you said your favorite pro and correct me if I'm wrong. It's fine. Maybe things have changed, but you said your favorite process of the whole filmmaking process is editing. Is that still true? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Elaborate for me. <laughs> well, listen, you write your movie, you're sitting there and you're writing a movie. It's fantastic. It's a great movie. And then, uh, you know, you go through the process of trying to raise the money and you only raise half the money you need in order to create those crane shots and everything you imagine. And, you know, you're going to have Mark Ruffalo play uh, Frankenstein and uh, all that. Yeah. Kind of stuff. None of that happens. And then you, you know, you adjust. So production becomes like this practical experience, which is fantastic. If you have a certain philosophy of life, as I have adapted uh you're like i'm so ready to meet the day and then you go in there and you make the movie but things go wrong the weather you know the the, the, the just things don't quite happen the way you want uh but you're still you're in it to win it and and it's such a great struggle i i love production but i'm so happy when it's over and then you have your footage and that's really like an open invitation. Like, so the footage is saying, what can you do with me? I'm a whole new animal. I'm not your script. I'm not your production. Forget about the fact that one of the actors wouldn't behave themselves. What do you got? Come on, let's work together. And it's a, it's a singular experience. And that's where you make the movie. That's the movie. 
because everything else is sort of aspiration, it's hope, it's, uh, it's struggle, and, and those are all good things, but you got to leave it all behind. Now, that's why most people have an editor, uh, because that editor doesn't know anything that happened wrong on the set. They don't know that you hated that guy or that the crane didn't work or that that's not the camera angle you wanted. They're just like, okay, so what do we got? Oh, so you start, oh, we got this great close-up. That's a great shot. And you're like, no, we were supposed to have a wide shot for that. And they're like, dude, the close-up is speaking to me, you see? So whether it's an editor or yourself, that's where you make the movie. You're looking at the material. Do you, while you're shooting, and I imagine this is a yes, uh, do you edit while you're shooting? Do you, do you plan Absolutely. it? Yeah. Not only do I do that, but uh, I really, really try, you know, because I make a lot, of, I, I produce a lot of movies and I try to mentor young filmmakers. And my main agenda is, you know, listen, we have a limited budget, but if you're smart, you get the most out of your experience and keep moving forward. And the key to that is editing on set. And by that, I mean, not that you have an editor it's chained in the basement, but that your brain is going, oh my God, that shot. I want that in my movie. Okay, so I have that. And then you're like, okay that performance i want that in my movie and then you start going all right we have that we don't need another we don't need another tank and you know of course then you get down to personalities who are like well is there anything better let's do it again but you know at a certain point you run out the clock anyway mm. the answer to your question is yes you're editing on set that's the way to make a, a at least a low budget film but i would argue any film no because from my experience when i'm directing and i've just made some very low-end stuff um but i've had I, i've had moments on set with people where they you know when conflicts arise and it's always like no no no, no you're not understand i'm seeing this in my head I'm, I'm seeing this cut here like and you've i don't know personally for me when i have to explain what i'm seeing in the editing room while we're on set um, it's embarrassing. Like th that's just my self-conscious kicking in. Like, no, 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 you don't understand in the, in, in what's in my head. And like, it goes from here to here. And people always look at me like, yeah, man, but uh, um, I don't know. But I, I, nobody really seems to get that besides a director or people who aspire to direct that we're, we have the film in our head and it's usually different by the time we get to post anyway. But I don't know. I think it's a good sign of a good director when they have it in their head while they're shooting just like someone like Hitchcock I feel and I don't know are you a big fan of Hitchcock I almost feel like you're setting me up listen first of all <laughs> I have it written down right here and I was just like I gotta bring my rant in for a landing and so there it is fair enough good good work and uh yes I am a, of course a, a huge Hitchcock fan I only say of course because Anyone who knows me knows that I'll always reference Hitch because he designs his films. But let me go back to what you were saying is, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's so important 
to edit the movie in your head as you're going. And, you know, you can share with your collaborator and say, dude, we, we got that moment. That's how I want to cover it. And actually what I need now is, is a shot to get out of it. In other words, you, you, you want to in, let people know how you're thinking, but uh, this is really the beauty of, uh, you know, okay, so let, we're talking about two things. So Hitchcock, of course, is famous for the idea of designing his movies and setting up every shot. And, you know, he was always like, you know, I'm very boring making the picture because I've already designed it. That was the best Hitchcock impression ever to appear on this show. (laughs) It's the only, but it's the best. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, So, but, you know, there's a lot going on. And even Hitchcock, I think, is sometimes lying. Uh, which is my whole theory about Hitch, that he was creating a persona. So he was saying things that were exaggerated. I mean, of course he designed his movies, but there's also an understanding and a love of cinema language that you do in the moment. And that's actually more exciting. I'm sure that's true of Kubrick. We all know uh, the Kubrick scene where he's figuring out to shoot the low angle shot of Nicholson when he's in the freezer. And, uh, you know, Kubrick's like, you know, well, I don't know, uh, Jack, you know, they could lean a little forward. And you're just like, oh my God, how amazing they created this iconic shot, but it wasn't like drawn somewhere. So the point is, is filmmaking is always going to be, or has to be, should be uh, an incredibly spontaneous collaborative moment. you know, activity in the moment, but um, uh, but yeah, you have to go in with a plan and then be able to loosen up and uh, adjust the plan because new great things present themselves. So you have to be incredibly present during production. And this, I, I hope comes back to your point. As a result, as you make changes to the storyboards or as you just sort of go through the day, you have to be able to tell someone, I don't know who they are, the assistant director, that, no, no, I'm confident. I got the edit in my head. It's working. It's all good. We're, we're still, we're on this together. And, you know, you have to share that. And, um, but that's the agenda. You're only shooting for the edit. You're not shooting for an experience I had. Yeah, you know, that's indulgent. All right. I love it. I love it. So with that being said, I want to jump because I just, it, I hadn't seen it in about 10 years. I just saw Habit again for the first time because it's streaming on Shutter right now. Came on, I think, last month. Spent my Saturday night watching it. Uh, I think the first time I saw it, it was playing, there's like a little, it was during Halloween time. I was like 21 20, 21 years old. And there was a little art house theater next town over from where I grew up. And I was trying to broaden my horizons of genre films besides hockey masks and bloody machetes, you know, and I, I I don't know, I just strolled into it and thought it was really great. It was pretty much my introduction to you, even though this was probably 2009 ish. And I I just, just rewatching it again, brought back a, some memories of like pre 9-11 New York, like the New York that a lot of New Yorkers tell me 
doesn't exist anymore. Um, I don't know what your take is on that, but I, I've heard stories about, you know, how the film kind of got out into the world. And I'll ask you that in a little bit, but just kind of tell me how, tell me how it came together. Well, I had made the movie in uh, 1981, believe it or not. I, uh, yeah. As a, as a kind of a, a video project that I did when I was still in school and hanging out with pals. Uh, we shot a lot in uh, Upper West Side, whatever. I knew cameraman who was, I think, going to Columbia. But anyway, so, but years later, I realized I wasn't done telling that story. So I wrote the script again. And uh, I, I conceived of making as low a budget movie as possible. I hired one fellow. I mean, he was, I didn't hire him. I just made an arrangement with my pal, Dane Taylor. And, uh, and we sort of put it together. We did auditions and the whole thing. Um, Anyway, we shot in the streets of New York. We shot in film, of course, in those days, that was the way you did it. Uh, we got an amazing DP. I mean, our concept was to be so independent of any kind of restrictions that we were gonna have different DPs. It was like, I don't even wanna have some camera guy telling me what's what. So I was, I was literally in search after the first movie I'd made called No Telling cost more money than it made back. And I just felt frustrated by that crew. So I just wanted to do something where I was so loose and light in the foot. Uh, and so we, Dayton and I, we built this idea of this no budget movie, even though we shot on film in those days. Um, but uh, a DP named Frank DeMarco, he joined us and he said, hey, you crazy? What do you mean many DPs? That's ridiculous. And he joined us and he had a camera. So uh, we set out uh, to make the film and we made it, I always love to say, we made it over 45 days. Everyone, when you meet people, they say, oh my God, you made your indie movie in 15 days, right? 12 days, how did it go? And we were like, I was always like, no, actually, 45 days. But reality <laughs> in 14, but whatever. <laughs> but the reality is what was happening is that we'd shoot for three hours, just get a scene, and then everybody'd go home and they'd have to do their jobs, you know. So yeah. We just it was peppered out the fall of whatever year that was. So um that's how we made that movie. And then, dude, I don't even remember your question. I mean, <laughs> no, that you basically kind of answered it, but it, it, it feels, it felt very, I don't know. I don't want to say it felt, felt run and gun, but it definitely felt like you with three other guys behind the camera and you guys were just going like wherever, yeah. wherever the night took you. I don't know, but it, I think, you know, I think, you know, cause everybody, you know, that the saying is these days, you know, just pick up a camera and go shoot and yeah, yeah. Go pick up a camera and go shoot. And, you know, here you are in the, like the mid nineties or whatnot, just doing it in New York where permits are expensive and shit. And I, I don't know. I just tip my hat to you and like, you know, I, I kind of also love those nineties movies about New York 
or like 80s to and 70s. And I feel like you captured that in that time frame um, really well. I mean, it absolutely. And, you know, some of the great scenes are uh, on the streets at the San Gennaro Festival, which is um, a, uh, you know, Italian festival that happens in the fall. And, you know, we, we did our schedule according to what would work for these events uh, because the city was our backdrop. That was essential to me, you know, and even the colors of the subway cars, everything was very designed and yet designed in the sense of like, oh, we got to wait for this subway to go by because we want the other subway, you know, so we, we knew our agenda, but um, yeah, we've, I mean, I have great stories to tell you about uh, just, filming on the incredible Ferris wheel, the Ferris wheel yeah. in the middle of the, of the thing. And it was all about like working with the, the dude who ran that, um, you know, just being respectful to him and saying, hey, listen, we're gonna just get on the, on the wheel with our camera and, and whatever. It, I, I discuss it in other forums. I won't bother you guys, but it's just like, yeah, it was an organic experience. And that's something I've tried to carry on uh, as I encourage young filmmakers on like sort of be responsive to your neighborhood, to your environment. Um, and in the long run, you know, you carry that forward. It shows a sense of respect for your community, for your crew. Uh, I mean, the beauty of habit, our crew is four or five people. And, um, but as I say, if they had to work, if they had a job, fine, we'll meet the day after tomorrow. That's why the schedule went away. And I rehearsed a long time with the actress. So it was a very organic experience. It's hard to recreate uh, in the modern scenario because everyone's like, okay, here's the money. We want a movie in 15 days. And uh, and I like working under those restrictions as well. Yeah, let's do it. Let's fucking get prepared and uh, let's bang this thing out. So everything's good. It's all good. Roger Corman style, I guess. Yeah, that's uh, all good. Yeah, no, um, I just totally forgot to say this at the top of when we started talking about habit. What's just for anybody who doesn't know, What's the elevator pitch? What's the plot of, uh, of this film? Well, like all my movies, uh, it's like, uh, okay, vampire movie. What if? What if it really happened? So it's just a dude who's actually an alcoholic. He's, uh, I don't know, he was 33 when I made the movie uh, the second time, the real habit, so to speak. Um, he's kind of a lost soul looking for something uh but he meets this mysterious woman and uh and she uh and it's just the drama of him trying to figure out if she's really a vampire or not i mean it's about paranoia it's about denial alcoholism and friendships it's about loneliness he appeals to his friends he says, man, I'm feeling so bad. I'm feeling so scared. I'm feeling so lost. I'm feeling, and his friend is like, well, I don't know. let's go have a drink. So it's really about loneliness. That's kind of what all my movies are about. Uh, real deep 
the old school existential questions like we're here we live as we dream alone is the uh the the line that the main character speaks and uh, he's just clearly feeling lost and it's interesting i don't know how that all plays out in the modern world with the kids with the with the facebook and the the tweets and all the rest but i would argue that we are all still feeling lonely because that's just the natural state and um i think every generation deals with it uh and this was how i dealt with it in the, the 90s um but it all goes back to you know sartre and camus you know the point is, is uh if there's no god we are so alone and all we have is working together. And that's what's frustrating about our political system right now is that everybody is working opposed to each other. So that's my big speech, buddy. <laughs> Perfect, man. Uh, you mentioned there being no God just now, but that just gave me a perfect segue. Uh, you played a preacher man in a film that just came out a couple months back, also on Shudder. Jacob's wife. <laughs> uh, this is what I'm not just saying this because you're on this show right now. I promise you, but this is one of the best movies I've seen this year. This was just so fun and so well crafted and seeing you in front of the camera was cool. And like, you know, what made you say yes to the film? Oh, well, I mean, I know, uh, a lot of the players. Yeah, the yeah. I know Barbara Crampton. She's fantastic. We've acted together in the past. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not only uh, We Are Still Here uh, by Ted Gig and then produced by the director of, uh, what the fuck are we talking about? Um, you know what I mean? <laughs> Travis Stevens. Yeah, yeah. Jacob's yeah. wife. Uh, but then... Um, you know, Barbara and I have done radio plays together and just like she's a pal. And that's what's cool about Barbara. I, I had a she becomes a pal, you know. I had Brandon Christensen on who made Super Host, which she's in. And he said she's I mean, I don't I don't know if you're a sports guy. Brandon, I guess, was and I but <laughs> he's just like she's like Tom Brady now. She just yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. she's a seasoned veteran. She knows what she's doing. You know, it's just, she's so thorough and just, you know, she just kicks ass. She's Barbara Crampton. I mean, she's a, she's a goal to have on this show for me. I'd love to give her an interview, but yeah, that that's awesome to hear too. Yeah. And she will do it. I mean, by the way, but in any case, she's just fantastic. Such exuberance, but seriousness and uh, knows exactly what she's doing so that's cool uh so she invited me on board um travis stevens i had already worked with so we just there was a great uh familiar attitude we all just headed down to mississippi and made the picture right before the damn fucking covid so we were you know it was funny because you were hearing about covid but uh we were just having fun making a movie in the south and uh 
Yeah, I mean, what can I say? I, I enjoyed uh, taking on this character. I have a, I mean, I have a great understanding of uh, an old white fart who, you know, thinks she's got it figured out. Uh, a sense of morality and, uh, you know, and yet somewhat tone deaf to the suffering of his wife. Uh, and I, you know, I just, it made a lot of sense to me and, and was fun to play. Uh, of course, he's a blowhard and a fool and uh, I hated my costume, made me look fatter than I even am. So oh, man. that's all part of acting, you know, you gotta, you gotta believe in your, your mission. That's the character and that's the mission. So I had a lot of fun. And then, you know, we had a couple of, random other kind of things going on in the movie but yeah well before i get too far away from it because i think maybe you said something a little bit just a minute ago but like what do you think that film is trying to say outside of it just being a, a vampire movie well i don't know if it's trying to say one thing but of course it's exploring the ideas of uh the oppressed wife you know the stodgy, uh, what do we call it? I mean, you know what I'm saying, the, just the old white hierarchy, just everything being as it is. And then, you know, this is the thing. And I think we almost started with this, but uh, horror is such a fun way to look into issues of exploitation and, and, and every other conceivable uh, problem or uh, situation in our society. And yet it's in a, in a, in a fanciful way. It's in, a, in, a, uh, it's in the, the guise of metaphor. And this is, I think, really essential. And I've, I've made statements that are maybe a little outside the current trend, but I think metaphor is something we have to protect and believe in, and that's where horror lives. Uh, we can't just be so defined by identity that we lose the idea that metaphor allows for, it's a bigger tent. It allows a lot of people in to feel like they're part of a conversation and part of a, a critique, if you will. So at its simplest, uh, Jacob's wife is clearly about uh, Barbara Crampton <laughs> feeling suppressed, uh, an old white boob uh, who thinks he's doing the right thing, leading his flock, but he's clearly sort of an old stodgy, you know, I just had so much fun. I could understand that character and yet he's, uh, but you know, the cool thing is that he kind of learns a little bit of his lesson, though you can tell he's struggling. <laughs> yeah, by the third act, the the this flip he does, I, I think, is the payoff's really good. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Now, like but I he's said, not a good time. He's no, he's not. No, he's not. You can tell he he hates it for the last twenty minutes of the movie. Like he's he's, he's miserable. <laughs> but no, it is one of the best movies I've seen this past year. It was. It sounded like it was a lot of fun to make and definitely showed on screen. Um, 
yeah, I just kind of wanted to wrap it up because I know like I, I gave, I didn't give, but um, I interviewed uh, Christian Nilsson for dash cam and I know you're in it. You have, I don't want to say a bit part, but you actually have a pivotal part. That's, you know, doesn't, isn't really like, doesn't have like a massive amount of screen time, but like, I remember seeing him like, Oh my God, they got Larry to be in this. And just talk to me how like you ended up being in dash cam, which I, I found out, you know, clearly just by how the setup is was shot during COVID. I mean, he told me all the behind the scenes stuff, but you know, how did you, how did you get roped into that? Uh, so my pal, uh, Andrew Vanton Houghton, give me a call. He said, this guy, Christian is kind of cool. He's done something fun. You know, he got the number one movie. We all know about all that. Yeah, that was cool. uh, but more importantly, he said, I think this is a cool script. I'm really supportive. So that was the way it works. You know, Andrew advises and said, give it a shot. Then, uh, I read the script and I liked, you know, it, it heralds back to old seventies movies. Uh, you know, in terms of the paranoia world. Mm, uh, but yeah. I also like that my character would just be in one one night, one scene, and then it would sort of be endlessly replayed. And I, I just, I kind of love that in any movie. Um, obviously, uh, so, uh, yeah, I just, I thought it was fun. It was during COVID, so it was all very, you know, surreptitious. I went driving out to Long Island to be in the movie and we had our protocols, but it was really low key. Anyway, so, you know, on many levels, it, it seemed like a cool thing to do and I'm happy, you know? Yeah, no, it came out, it came out great. I loved it. Yeah. So Larry, thank you for coming on the show, man. Thank you for talking to me for 40 ish minutes. This was a lot of, is there anything you want to maybe mention coming down the pipeline anytime soon for you? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't like talking about what's going to happen because I, yeah, I feel you going to happen, but uh, you know, man, it's lovely to talk and to celebrate all these old pieces. And I hope people check out things like habit and dash cam and, whatever the hell else we talked about. <laughs> All right, man. Is there any place, I mean, I know it's glass eye picks has got an Instagram, but uh, do you just, is that kind of where people can find you or what or stuff about you? Well, you know, what's funny is that I have a website. It's the most fun website on the. It really uh, is. Like I check it out from time to time. Glasseyepicks.com. Now I know everybody wants to do Facebook and all that. Well, I think we're on Facebook and Instagram, mm. but, but in a funny way, go to glasseyepicks.com. You'll just have a crazy time. So much going on there. We got great little movies and uh, lots of news items, of course. And uh, anyway, that's that's my home. And it, I've been building that since the 90s when it was actually unusual to have a website. Now nobody goes to websites because they're doing it another way. But uh Hey, man, come on back. Come on home to glasseypicks.com. All right. I will send people your way. It is really, it really actually really is a cool website. I, I dig it a lot. Uh, Larry Fessenden, thank you for the, uh, thank you for the interview. And uh, I'd love to have you back on some point down the road. This was awesome.
Absolutely, man. All right. And you guys know the routine with the show. You leave a rating, you leave a review, you make sure this show doesn't disappear into the abyss of all the millions and millions of podcasts out there. Take care. See you next week.